Good morning. Welcome to Catechesis. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Bethany Erickson, as Mary just said. My husband is Joel, who preaches every so often. And you can usually find me way in the back with our five kids. Uh, before, before I get started, you know, Mary, do we have a sign-up sheet? Because I don't have one. Okay. <laughs> um, there will be a sign-up sheet uh, for a potential book study on The Color of Compromise. It's this book right here by uh, Dr. Jamar Tisby. The subtitle is The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. It's a historical overview from the colonial era to basically the present day. Um, the sign-up sheet is not like a commitment to join. It's more like keep me apprised of the opportunity. Okay. Um, I discovered this book after it was recommended uh, by Bishop Hobby in 2020. Uh, and God really used this book in my life to send me down a path of repentance that I am still on. Um, let's quickly define terms. I've taken this definition from an organization called Be the Bridge. It's a Christian racial justice reconciliation organization. Um, there's also a book by the same title by Latasha Morrison, which is very good. Um, racism is a system of advantage based on race involving cultural messages, misuse of power, and institutional bias, in addition to the racist beliefs and actions of individuals. So kind of what Mary was talking about or in her little introduction, I'm going to be talking about my own sins, but I mean this is all part of a web of sin, right? This is the sum of individual sins gathered up with a kind of satanic inertia. Um, this is principalities and power stuff. I would compare it to uh, sins of consumerism and greed or the culture of death where we understand these sins as seeping into the fabric of the culture. These sins can form us without us even noticing. Another source describes it as prejudice plus power. Now, I am white, as I notice most of you are too. Uh, so right now, let me be clear, I am not saying that only white people sin. We are all sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, I am saying that in this nation historically, and still today in large part, white people like you and me have held the power. We had the financial power, the legal power, the political power. And that gave us the opportunity to sin in powerful ways. So now maybe you don't feel like you come from a very powerful place. I would have said the same thing. My paternal grandmother, I was very close to growing up, uh, she grew up very poor in the Great Depression in rural Tennessee. Okay. Uh, her father was a farmer who didn't own his own land. So the only difference between him and a sharecropper was his whiteness. She remembers when they got electricity. Uh, she had one homemade doll her whole life. 
And she once explained her experience in those days by saying, I might as well have been black. That's a very revealing statement. A whole world is in it. And for many years, I took it at face value. Because it's true that she did not have many kinds of privilege. She certainly did not have financial or economic privilege. She did not have much educational privilege, though she did graduate high school, which was better than many. Um, she had a lot of disadvantages, challenges, and obstacles to overcome. It wasn't until I learned more about the racial terror of lynching and the segregation under which she grew up um, that I realized that her whiteness did do a few things for her. My grandmother would have been seven years old when the last recorded lynching took place in Tennessee. It was in a neighboring county. According to records kept by Fisk University in Nashville, a man named Albert Williams was lynched in June 1940 when he attempted to register to vote and establish a local chapter of the NAACP. I have no idea whether she knew of it, but I am sure her parents would have heard the news. So one thing my grandmother did have was freedom from that fear, that just trying to register to vote or improve your situation would risk mob violence and brutal and humiliating death. Here I return to a verse that has meant so much to me as I study my own past and that of our nation. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And I say to you this morning, I have inherited an empty way of life. If you know me, you know that I also come from a Christian family, but the truth is we're all a mixed bag. I inherited a certain ignorance and self-centeredness about race right along with my love for iced tea and Jesus. Oh, may my children inherit only my goodness and none of my sins. Why is racism a sin? This is the stuff I expect you already know, but I have three principles from the Bible um, on your handout from Genesis to Revelation that we're going to briefly cover. Racism denies the imago Dei, the image of God in every person endows each of us with dignity and worth. Racism violates the golden rule. Christ commands that we treat others as we would like to be treated to love our neighbor as ourself. This seems like an obvious one in its application to me, and yet we have struggled so hard with it. And racism resists the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is, in Revelation, uh, we see in heaven all tribes, nations, languages, and peoples gather together before the throne in worship. This is the end to which we are called. This is where we're going to be 
someday, Lord willing, right? Um, when John is given this vision, he can clearly see that there are all different people, different colors, different cultures, different languages standing around the throne of God. They did not have to check their culture at the pearly gates. They came in as their full selves, only holy. <laughs> I mean, and this is a mystery of God's creativity because we often think holiness looks one way. Um, but there are billions of ways to be saints because each of us will be made holy and still somehow recognizably ourselves. And this just blows my mind. <laughs> uh, God loves diversity. I think if you look out the window, he didn't make just one kind of tree. He made trees. And each part of his creation, each one of us, reflects the glory of God. Now, I have had conversations, not with any of y'all, uh, where people are like, where is racism in the Bible? And it is true that racism is a bit of a modern world, word. Um, but this is how history helps us. Uh, racism could have been the word written on Pandora's box. Because it, it means the exploitation of the poor, violence against the innocent. It means bearing false witness, fraud, and deceit. It has meant putting asunder husband and wife, child from parent, in the slavery system. It has meant sexual abuse and assault and intimate inhumanity. Like a moral virus, racism infected every section of Christianity in the West. Catholics and Protestants, from Anglicans to Quakers, none of us have completely clean hands. Yes, there were exceptions. God has always raised up his prophets among us. And he always had his witnesses to his truth. But nonetheless, on the whole, we Christian people closed our eyes and ears to the truth. How did we get here? Our first sin, I would say, was greed. We sent out from Europe to find fortune, and we found it. Uh, the first enslaved Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619. Now, all 20 of them had earned their freedom by 1651. So at that point, they had the same opportunity to eventually escape slavery as white indentured servants. Uh, not that any of that was just, but less evil. Uh, free labor was just too profitable to resist. In 1661, Virginia officially legalized slavery, and in 1662, they declared that every child born of an enslaved mother would also be enslaved for life. In 1667, the Virginia General Assembly had to rule on another pressing matter regarding slavery. Would Christian baptism render the baptized free? Some white people had tried to protect their property from Christians seeking to evangelize the enslaved Africans. There was already precedent in English common law that it was not legal for Christians to enslave a fellow believer. And yet, this group of Anglican men in the Virginia General Assembly 
ruled that baptism would not alter the condition of the baptized bond or free. Christian evangelists could then offer freedom spiritual or spiritual freedom from sin, but not physical freedom from exploitation, violence, and bondage. My first ancestor on this continent was born in 1640 in Virginia. I am a descendant of people who owned other people, people made in the image of God. I had always assumed that we had owned slaves in the past, but thanks to my cousin's interest in our family's history, it is now a verifiable fact, and seeing it in the historical record is something else. In 1790, there was a bill of sale. My ancestors sold nine slaves and some livestock for 1,000 pounds. Jesus had it right. The love of money is the root of all evil. You see, we understood ourselves to be a Christian people, but we also wanted to make money. How could we justify our violent exploitation of Native and American and African people? Well, unluckily, the narrative of white supremacy was near at hand, and it proved very useful. And that told us that white men were meant to rule, that it was God's created order for the white race to be on top, the most advanced, the most civilized, and that all the other races can kind of fight it out for who's next. And maybe the African people were not fully human at all, and therefore simply the rules did not apply. This is how we got to a place in the 1800s where Christians were divided on slavery. A minority, a minority believed in abolition. A sizable chunk believed the slave system was a positive good ordained and blessed by God himself. And the rest of the white Christians in the US were somewhere caught in between. In 1807, British missionaries produced what has come to be called the Slave Bible. There's an exhibit at the Museum of the Bible in DC. About 90% of the Old Testament is missing, and about half of the New Testament. Anything that might have led the African uh, people to rebel, <laughs> to believe that maybe God was on their side, was not included. And we Americans did the same thing. Uh, we preached Paul to the enslaved people, not Exodus. Several of my ancestors fought for the Confederacy. I know because they listed their regiment on their tombstones even long after the Civil War. The Civil War is part of this history that we know or we think we know. Um, afterward, there was Reconstruction which I've only recently learned about. In my high school uh, US history class, we completely skipped it. Just didn't talk about it at all. Because uh, the gains for African Americans were very short-lived. Um, soon after the end of Reconstruction came segregation and Jim Crow laws, stripping the newly freed citizens of nearly every right promised to them. Um, for example, North Carolina passed a law that no person of color could testify against a white person in court unless the white person agrees to it. I don't know who would. 
And speaking of courtrooms, uh, from the 1860s to the 1920s, over 90% of the prison population in the South was black. If we estimate that the black population then was similar to today at about 13% of the total population, that is a lot of black people in jail. The 13th Amendment ended slavery except as a punishment for a crime. In other words, you could force someone to work without paying them if you first called them a criminal. So we adjusted our practices to the law. I'm not saying that all of those people were innocent, though surely some of them were. It's that we made laws that targeted the black community. Anti-vagrancy laws, for instance, where you couldn't just wander around town if you were able-bodied and not working. You had, so it kind of punished the unemployed. Um, and echoes of this persist even today. One clear <coughs> example, probably the clearest to me, is the Anti-Drug Act of 1986 which established a 101 ratio to mandatory minimum, minimums associated with cocaine. Um, so co cocaine can be processed into powder, which was more common in the white community, that's how white people use cocaine, and crack cocaine, and that was more popular in the black community. That's white, black users would use crack, white users cocaine, powder. It would take 5,000 grams of powdered cocaine to land you in prison for a minimum of 10 years, but only 50 grams of crack. It wasn't until the Obama administration that this disparity in sentencing was reduced, though not totally eliminated. Now, I will remind you again that this lesson is uh, part of my Lenten practice of self-examination and confession and repentance. Um, I don't speak to you as one who has arrived. I am still very much on this journey. Uh, my life did take a turn after reading The Color of Compromise in 2020, and I just developed a hunger for learning more about this and read a whole bunch of other books in the last three years. Um, but as I look back, I see that God has been calling to me to repent what feels like my whole life gently but persistently. And I, I want us to remember this being Lent, that the call to repent is a call of love. He wants us forgiven, he wants us healed, he wants us free. And I hope you can see that as I get a little bit more personal with you here. I was born in Jackson, Tennessee in 1983, and I spent my early years in a white world. I mean, what I mean is my family is white, my church was full of white people, and so like a fish in water, my whiteness was invisible to myself. When I was five, we moved to a small town in western Illinois near Peoria uh, for my elementary school years, and that was, again, white working class kind of community. And uh, we would later spend like a hot minute in Sioux Falls, South Dakota during my middle school years. and. Uh, Spoiler alert, Sioux Falls is also very white. I do remember a visit to Tennessee when I was seven or eight that taught me 
what may have been my first lesson on race. A relative of mine took me to the mall to buy me a pair of shoes. And for some reason, <laughs> which was not her best move, uh, she gave me the cash to hold. Let's call it a $10 bill. This would have been late 80s, however much it cost to buy a pair of shoes. Um, I, I remember just playing in the store and I lost the money. When I told her I'd lost it, she called the employees together of the store to interrogate them. Three black employees, I still remember, gathering around her. She was sure that one of them knew where that money was. Eventually, she gave up recovering the cash, bought shoes, and we left the store. And as we left, she said, they sure do stick together, don't they? I do not remember my reply. I remember feeling anxious and guilty and relieved that she wasn't mad at me. It is so odd the things that you remember. My brain lodged that memory just exactly, sure somehow that it contained important information for the future. I had been initiated into something, let in on a secret of the adult world. It was nothing good, but I took note. And we moved back to Tennessee when I was 12, where all my dad's family is from. And all of a sudden, half of my schoolmates were black. Um, I rem as an aside, I remember being shocked to find out um, that in Tennessee, the black population is only about 11%. And I told my aunt this. I was like, wow, I thought it would be like 50, because that's what it is here. And she replies, well, this is the agricultural area of the state. And just let that sink in. In any case, soon after we moved, my mom bought me a new shirt. I liked it. It was comfortable. I thought it was cool. It fit me. As soon as I wore it to school, though, uh, I realized it was a black shirt. I mean, it was a brand that black people wore. It's not something I was supposed to wear, at least not according to my teenage intuition. So I never wore it again. Um, what that says to me now is that somehow I already knew that my whiteness was worth protection. It can be very fragile. I went to Jackson Central Mary High School. It's kind of a mouthful. It was once the Jackson High, the white school, and Mary High, the black school. And in 1970, under court order, they built a crosswalk between the two buildings and integrated. Um, my father attended in the 70s, right after integration, and he played football. He was the quarterback. They were still trying to figure out how to become one team. Okay, So they were trying to give equal time to the black quarterback on the field and then call him back in. Here's the white quarterback, black quarterback, white quarterback. It was a process, this integration thing. I could not ignore the history beneath my feet. And frankly, the past was just not that long ago. Later in high school, a black classmate would ask me if I would date a black guy. I said no. 
I don't have any personal objection, hypothetically. Uh, but my family wouldn't go for it. Now, never mind, I kind of threw my family under the bus, um, which was maybe unfair. It remains untested. But it would be decades before I realized that a conviction that I abandoned the moment it cost me something was no conviction at all. When I turned 16, I spent my birthday money at the bookstore I have there. And while driving home, I began to read one of my new books. It was Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. Um, it is the true account of a white man who dyed his skin a darker shade and went undercover, so to speak, as a black man in the deep south in the 1950s. I read it in one day, stayed up until 3 o'clock in the morning. It was too terrible to put down and too explanatory. This, this is my copy, and I have a... I know this exactly because I wrote a little note to myself on this index card dated August 1999. So when I tell you that God's been calling me to repent for years, I really mean it. I thought that my mom's side of the family at least had clean hands, so to speak. My ancestors on her side came from Sweden in the late 1800s. She was like, hey, we weren't even here during the Civil War. They took advantage of the Homestead Act. In fact, that homestead uh, was still in our family. In t I mean, in my lifetime, my grandfather sold it. Um, it wasn't until recently that I learned that African Americans were not eligible to claim land under, under the Homestead Act. Newly freed from bondage, there was a different Homestead Act uh, that expired by the end of Reconstruction that was open to them. America had land for the taking, but we gave it away to white Europeans rather than the black citizens already here. So maybe my Swedish side did benefit from white supremacy after all. My father's side received a land grant from the government as well, cool story, in gratitude for beef, my ancestors donated to Washington's troops during the Revolutionary War. The newly formed United States promised us land in the Western Territory, which was Tennessee at the time. It was Chickasaw land, but we held the title. And that's how my family got to Tennessee. Now, growing up, I was taught to be proud of this history. I could have been a daughter of the American Revolution and so on. And in a way, I still am. Um, but I had a moment just the other day, literally weeks ago, where I finally put some historical facts together. Um, the Atlantic slave trade was outlawed in 1808, okay? So nearly all the African Americans who are here were here by 1808. So they too have a very long history in this country. You go back to the beginning. Right, in 1619, some Africans arrived. That's humbling, I thought to myself. And then immediately after, wait, why is that humbling? See, I didn't even realize the story I was telling with these historical facts. 
And the story I was telling that was, was that my people, white people, were here first. We founded this nation. We built this nation. We own this place. It's ours. But that story completely excludes black Americans. They're nowhere in it. So it was humbling, and I say this to my shame, to discover that black people were indeed here the whole time and have the same claim to this nation that I do. So what do we do with all of these facts? How do we integrate this knowledge into the stories we tell about ourselves? And how do we not just crumble under condemnation? I don't have all the answers, but here's what I have found. I have found that I can be humble and face facts, that my white heritage is full of racial injustice and the justification thereof. It is work to untangle white culture from white supremacy. Uh, white culture isn't all bad, understand me. Uh, we couldn't throw it all out if we wanted to, and we don't have to. What we need to figure out <laughs> is uh, a white identity that is re redeemed and, and transformed by Christ. I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but I do have hope in the love of God. I found hope in some unlikely places in scripture, like the book of Jonah. When uh, COVID hit, I uh, homeschooled my kids for one semester. Didn't last long. <laughs> but we did some Old Testament history in that time. And I discovered that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The same Assyrian Empire that conquered Israel and led its people captive into exile. It was an effective strategy on the Assyrians' part uh, to make it hard for the conquered people to rebel. So Jonah's refusal, refusal to warn them of God's judgment suddenly made a lot more sense. Uh, the Ninevites were not just pagans. They were oppressors of Israel. They deserved God's judgment, and they really did. And I realize now that I am much more like the Ninevites than the Israelites. My people were just not the ones in history who were conquered and taken captive. My ancestors were the ones doing the conquering and the capturing and the exiling. Those are the historical facts. The good news, though, is that God loved the Ninevites. He did not want to destroy them. He sent Jonah to warn them, and when they repented in sackcloth and ashes, he had mercy. And he has mercy on me, too, when I repent. A similar scandal in the New Testament is Christ's love of socializing with tax collectors. Um, tax collectors were complicit in the oppression of the Roman Empire. They gathered taxes for Caesar often skimming off the top. It was a lucrative business. I, I think it would be easy enough to rationalize that Rome was going to oppress your people anyway. And look, there was money to be made. Zacchaeus was one of those. But repenting, he pledged to repay those from whom he stole threefold. Jesus loves 
Zacchaeus. I found myself in scripture, not where I had always thought I would be, but still with hope, still with the love of God, um, still with mercy. So again, this Lent call to repentance is the call of love. For sin disfigures us. It hurts others, but it makes us less than who we were created to be. We are deformed by it. It separates us from the loving God. Sin blinds us. Habits of heart and mind etch so deeply we may not even be aware of them until God holds us up to the light, can and do damage our ability to know God, to see reality as it is, to see our neighbor, to rightly love others and love ourselves rightly as well. Beth Moore, uh, who I love, said that repentance requires long-haul courage. And that is the truth. So let us pray for the grace to begin. For we know that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Amen. Any feedback? Do we, I think we have a little bit of time, or do we not? <laughs> a couple minutes? Monica? To, to some degree, yes, but unfortunately a lot of that was forced upon us. Mm -hmm. So I do think, it, you know, it's not as if the union wins and suddenly everybody in the Confederacy saw the light and was like, oh, you're right. We're wrong, you know, oops, like no. Like they, they just continued on believing what they believed. They just, within the law, right, after that point, right? Yeah, they just, you know, it's just like to the extent that they could then, this is why segregation became a thing, right? Um, and then you see that again, it's like the civil rights movement really forced our hand in many ways. Um, so I think we're, to some degree, yes. I mean, I can look back at, you know, some of my, you know, an aunt of mine has done some of this work. I think my mother has a very soft heart. Um, and so I can, I can look back and say that I had some help, right? <laughs> um, 
but I, I don't think it's inevitable necessarily that, that we, you know, continue to improve, let alone repent, um, unfortunately. Any other thoughts? Yeah. The color of compromise? Oh, this other one? Black like me? Yeah. Oh, two minutes? Okay. Uh, this was published, uh, I used to know this by heart. It's 1960. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about what it means to repent for things that you personally did not do. So part of it is rooting out the legacy of that in my heart. And part of it is standing as just a representative of white people in general. I mean, I think there is some biblical precedent for doing that. On a very basic level, I was once very hurt by a pastor. Okay, this, is, this goes back. Okay. Um, and and uh, so, like, this is 2006. I, I had a lot of church trauma. Uh, trauma. There was a church split. It was terrible. I was hurting. And a vineyard pastor in Oak Park prayed for me and said, you know, as a pastor, I, I, I am sorry, and I ask your forgiveness as a, rep, you know, as a member of the clergy, I am sorry. And that is it, just critical to my healing at that moment. That, that meant something so precious to me so I think there's that's you know there's there's a way to do that I don't have all the answers but okay I think we have to wrap up